passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. You guys ever bought something you, you really wanted, but when you, it finally arrived, you realized you really didn't want it at all? That happened to me this past Christmas. You know, most of my gym clothes are pretty old. In fact, I was sort of realizing just recently that some of the gym clothes I wear were actually uh, made before the internet was in existence. I mean, that shows you how old some of my stuff is. So I thought it'd be time to upgrade a little bit. And I saw on Amazon, they have these things called these fight shorts. You know what I'm talking about, Dana, the fight shorts? And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get myself a pair of the fight shorts. So I got the right size, I ordered it, put it on, and then it became sort of a laughing thing in our house because it didn't fit me the way it's supposed to. I mean, maybe if I was 20 years old, the fight shorts would fit me. But in your 50s, things have shifted. We are painfully aware of that now. But thankfully, I bought it from Amazon, which is a no-hassle return policy. You just print out the label, send it back, no questions asked. But you know, it doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes you buy things and you can't return it, no questions asked. Sometimes you buy things you desperately wanted and you're stuck with it. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Buyer's remorse. <laughs> but it's buyer's remorse for God's people. There's something they desperately wanted. But when God finally gave it to them, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Now, before we dive into that this morning, let me just introduce you myself. If you're new, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors. As a church, we are working through the book of 1 Samuel, and today we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 10, about halfway through that book. Let me give you a little bit of the background you need to know. What has been going on is God's people have been asking for a king. They want a king so they could be just like the nations around them. Now, God has been their king in the past. God has protected them faithfully. God has watched over them, but they are rejecting God as their king. They want a human being as their king. And God has said, you know, if I give you a king, there's all kinds of problems when you have a human being in control over you as opposed to God in control over you. But they don't listen to God. They still want a king, so God agrees to give them that king. We began looking at that last week, where God reveals this king to them. The king's name is Saul. God, through his amazing work of providence and guidance, he orchestrates a situation where he ends up looking for, Saul ends up looking for lost donkeys, and it all works out to bring Saul and Samuel together in the gate of the city of Ramah, where they literally, like, bump into one another, and God says to Samuel, this man, Saul, is the one that you are to anoint as king over my people. And to cut to the short of it, God, or Samuel does anoint Saul as king. God gives Saul three confirmatory signs. This is indeed God's will, not just Samuel's will. Also, um, the Holy Spirit rushes upon Samuel and doesn't just hasn't just been called to the task of being king and anointed to the task of being king, but he's been supernaturally changed and equipped for the task of being king over God's people. Now, the other thing we know 
is that Saul has been told, there's a garrison of Philistines. It giveth Elohim. You're supposed to go start to wipe these guys out after the Holy Spirit rushes upon you. But this is where it all takes a strange twist. Even though he's been anointed, he's been gifted and called by God, what does Saul do? Absolutely nothing. In fact, when he sees his uncle, his uncle asks him, where have you been for the last few days? What happened for the last few days? He completely hides it all and doesn't say a thing about Samuel anointing him as king and the changes that have come into his life. Now, when we pick up uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17, which we're studying this morning, this is taking place maybe weeks, maybe a month after where we left off last week. Saul's been anointed, he's been called, and he is just sort of hanging out at home doing nothing about the calling that God has given him. Let's go ahead and pick up in your outlines. It's point two, Samuel's speech. And by the way, what's gonna happen is uh, Saul is gonna get anointed king sort of a second time, but this time it's gonna be a public way. So there's absolutely no way that Saul can hide for this calling on his life. Now, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Doesn't sound like much of importance there, except this word Mizpah. This is not the first time we've seen this location. If you've been with us for a while, you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that is where Samuel called the people together for a national assembly. That's where he told them to put away their idols. He urged them to repent of their sin and turn back to God. And there was a national repentance that took place in the place called Mizpah. And in the midst of that national repentance, remember that what happened is the Philistines began to attack them as they were repenting. But this time, instead of God fighting against them, God fought for them. And it says God thundered against the Philistines and there was a mighty defeat of the Philistines. And remember that week, we learned the big idea of what happened in that chapter is repentance makes all the difference. When God's people repented, God was no longer fighting against them. He was fighting for them. So when Samuel brings the people back to the place of Mitzpah, I don't think he just wants these people to remember the great national revival of 30 years ago in the past. Quite honestly, I think he's hoping there would be a national revival then in the present that people would turn away from the desire to reject God as their king. That they would accept, excuse me, I got it backwards. They would turn away from their desire to reject a man as their king and they would stick with God as their king. And Samuel gives a little speech here. It comes in two parts. The speech that encourages them to repentance. It's first of all what God has done for them and then how they are treating God. It says this, what has God done for his people? Samuel says to the people at Mizpah, he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Remember the Exodus? 
Now, if you've been doing the take up and read Bible reading plan that we are doing as a church family, you know there's an Old Testament portion and a New Testament portion. If you've been doing the Old Testament portion of the readings, you were actually reading about the Exodus this past week. You were reading about how God essentially rescued his people out of a superpower called Egypt. He did it with plagues, plagues of blood, of turning the Nile to blood, then frogs and gnats and flies and locusts and hail, ultimately the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And what's amazing is after the first plagues, which were on all people, the subsequent plagues were just focused on the Egyptian people. In other words, these plagues didn't touch God's people. God crushed the superpower of the day. The people were saved and brought out of Egypt without them having to lift a single finger. And Samuel's saying, if God took your ancestors out of Egypt, don't you think he can take care of the puny Philistines right now? I mean, these guys are not a problem. Not only that, but he says, remember that for the last 250 years, God has protected you from all your enemies. He's raised up judges to save you from all your enemies. In fact, 30 years ago, in this very location, Mizpah, God thundered against the Philistines and saved you from the Philistines. God has never let you down in the past. He will not let you down now. Why? Why are you rejecting God as your king? It seems to me that what happened is they forgot about the fact that God has always been faithful to them in the past. All they could see was the problems of the present. And they lost like a long distance view of things. Now as I thought about that, it, first we start to laugh at these silly Israelites. How could they not remember how good God has been to them? How God has never failed them? How could they just want to walk away from him as soon as they get a little pressure? But then I thought, you know, aren't we just the same way? I want to ask you, has God ever failed you? Has God let you down? There's been trials in the past. There's been difficulties in the past, but he has never walked away from you. He loves you. He sent his own son to die for you. He promises that the moment of your death will not be the moment of your greatest defeat. It'll be the moment of your greatest victory. So if God has never let us down, why is it so easy for us to walk away from him as soon as we get some problems in the present and rely on everything else besides him in the present? I put this as an application point for us. As soon as we have a problem, don't turn to everything besides God for help. See, as soon as the Israelites had a problem, they thought, well, if we could just have a, a king like the other nations around us, that would solve everything. <laughs> no, God is the one who is the one who's gonna carry you through. And folks, the same thing can go through with us. What are the trials that are you're facing? Maybe, like, right now it's your kids. Maybe there's problems with your children. 
and the people around you say, oh, just go to this doctor, get these meds, just go to this counselor, and this counselor will solve all the problems. I'm not saying there's no place for meds and no place for counselors for children who are going through difficult times, but we're Christians. What we do is we go first and foremost to, to God. We go to Jesus who loves us. And we get on our knees and say, what my child needs first and foremost is to be touched by you, Jesus. They need to come to you, Jesus. If they are not born again, they need to be born again. If they are born again, they need a huge step of spiritual growth. Jesus, please rescue my child. That is how we handle the challenges of life differently as Christians. But it's so easy to be just like the Israelites and look at the worldly solutions around us first and say, if we just had a king, all of our problems would be solved. Maybe for you, it's a work environment difficulty. Work is really hard. And so you say, I know what my friends are doing, putting their resume on monster.com, you know, just go find another, another job, shift and change. But is that the way we're supposed to handle things first and foremost as Christians? Maybe when there's difficulty in the work environment, the Lord wants us to get on our knees and talk to him about those things. Jesus, why is this work environment so difficult? Why do you have me here? And maybe the Lord will say, you know, the reason I have you there is because I need a bright light in a really dark place right now. I have you there for a reason. Don't run from my calling for you at work. Stay at my calling for you at work. You know, we don't handle problems the same way that other people do. We go to God first. This is why the scripture says this, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Those who are far from God, can they legitimately say that all the time? We know he cares for us. He sent his son to die for us. So we do begin by casting our anxieties, worries, and challenges on Jesus and let him guide and let him direct. So the first thing we've seen is God has been faithful to his people in the past. The next thing we see is this, that what God's people had done to him in spite of God's faithfulness. But today, you've rejected your God who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. There is a great disparity here between how faithful God has been to them in the past and how unfaithful they are being to him in the present. They want a human king. I began thinking to myself, well, why are they so rejecting of God as their king? They know their history, but see what's been happening as you've been with us is it seems like the Philistines are encroaching on them. Remember, we saw last week, there's a garrison of Philistines that giveth Elohim deep inside Israelite territory. Uh, seems like God's not there for the moment. Seems like things are sort of falling apart around them, so they think we need a human king. But here's what I want you to know. In the book of Samuel, we've seen God allowed the Philistines to harass his people when he was disciplining them because they were walking away from him. The reason he allowed the Philistines to harass his people was in hopes that they would repent and turn back to him. 
In other words, there is a good reason and a good motive behind the hard times God allowed into their life. It was so they'd repent and turn back, not wander away. But even in the midst of this discipline, of allowing the Philistines to harass them, I want you to know that discipline was measured and it was under control. God was not letting the Philistines do anything they wanted to him, wanted to his people, only what God allowed for the Philistines to do to his people. God always had a good purpose in their hard times, and it was to bring them closer to him. This brings us to another application point I want to give to you. When God allows troubles in our life, Job, for instance, teaches us they are limited by God and also promises that God is going to use them for his good purposes. God loves us. When he allows trials in our life, they are always measured, they're limited, and God has them under control. He used them for a good reason. Think of Job. You're familiar with the book of Job. Satan comes to God and says, hey, look, look at this Job guy. The only reason he loves you is because you're treating him so well. If you ruin his life, he'd turn on you. And God says to Satan, okay, you can ruin his business, you can ruin his family, but you cannot touch his health and life. You can only go so far, Satan, because God has got a leash on him. And then, after Job's life falls apart, but he still doesn't turn and curse God, um, Satan says to God, well, if you touch his health, then he'll turn from you. So God says, okay, you can touch his health, but you can't take his life. You know, there's a limitation here each time. But what we find is the difficulties in Job's life was not because God was disciplining Job, trying to bring him back to God. He, Job was faithful to God, but God was using those hard times for a good reason. That good reason was that Job would bring glory to God in the times of suffering. Did you realize that? Sometimes when God allows hard times in our life, it's to discipline us and to turn us back to him because we've wandered away. But sometimes those hard times aren't there for discipline. It's that we would bring glory to God by displaying how we rely on him, turn to him, entrust in him, even when the bottom falls out in our world, just like Job did. So the point is that God has always been faithful to his people. Even in hard times, God is still being good to his people. And those hard times, they're always limited by God, and they're always measured and controlled by God. And this is what's true with God's people. But bring back to the situation at Mizpah. Samuel has said, God's been faithful. He said, now you are rejecting God by asking for a human king. What do you think would come next? Obviously, some form of judgment. Because you've rejected me, here are the consequences. And that's what happens. But it's not the kind of consequences you would expect. It's a little different. It's point number three. We look at the Lord's choice. Samuel says, now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. What happens is a casting of lot system starts to begin. Now you say, 
how is this punishment? A casting of lots that is ultimately going to end up identifying Saul as the true king. If you know your scriptures, you'll remember in the book of Joshua, there is another time that the lots were cast. Remember when God's people went into the promised land? First they took out the city of Jericho. Then they went to the city of Ai, but they were completely defeated. And there was sin in the camp, and they decided, we got to figure out where this sin is coming from. So there was a casting of lot system. They went all the way down to Achan. Achan was identified as the one who had sinned that caused the suffering for other people. Well, here we have a casting of lot system, not to identify who sinned in the people, but to identify who God would give them as a king because of their sin and because they have rejected him. Let's follow this casting of lots a little bit. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. The clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Last week, we saw that Saul was anointed king privately. Now, we see Saul is anointed king publicly. He tried to hide the truth from his uncle last week. And we're going to see he's going he's to try to hide, but not be too successful at hiding from the public this week. And here's a application point I put in your notes because we saw it last week but it comes out with great color this week God sometimes punishes the nations by the policies choices and character flaws of the leader God gives the nation that's what God is doing he's punishing his people for rejecting him as king and seeking a human king giving them Saul as king now, by the way, this principle still applies today, but please hear me on this. I said it last week, I'll say it again. This is not a political statement, that is a biblical statement. It was true a thousand years before today, and if Jesus doesn't return, it'll still be true a thousand years after today. Later in biblical history, when Hosea looks back at this moment of God giving the people Saul as their king, this is what he says about it. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. He's judgment. Now, I'd like to change gears for a little moment. And this section raises a question that we should talk about. It's Saul's selection process, discovering God's will. Saul has already been anointed as king, and they go through this whole lot selection process, and essentially Saul wins the lottery, and he's publicly identified as king. And we knew that would happen because God anointed him as king last week. Now we see that he, he wins the lottery this week. And it reminds us that nothing, nothing in this world happens by chance. Remember we saw that last week and how all the whole steering of the donkeys and everything getting Saul to Samuel, nothing by chance. The scriptures say this, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the, the Lord. So this week, when you guys are having some fun, you're playing board games, you're rolling the dice, you say, well, just a random answer. Actually, it's not. 
technically God has determined how the dice would roll and what numbers would be there. But then you start to ask, you know, let me ask you a little bit more about this. Is this the way that we should be determining God's will? Since God is in control of every random thing, should we be like rolling dice to determine God's will? Should you, if you're trying to figure out which college to go to, do you like put a name of a college on each side of the dice and roll it and the one that's up? Well, that's the way God wanted it to go because he's in control of random things. Or you can be like a friend of mine who talked to me in the last few weeks. He has these two girls he really likes. He's not too sure which one to marry. I mean, do you have them flip a coin and say, oh, by the way, your heads, your tails, I'm sorry, your tails, you lost. Is that the way we determine God's will in these things? No, it isn't. Let me show you this. Even though God is in control of random events, we don't make choices based on chance. We check God's word for God's will and we rely on the Holy Spirit for guidance. We have to remember, we have things available to us that people in the time of Samuel did not have available to them. First of all, all they would have had would have been the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. We have the entire canon of God's word. And God's word tells us everything we need to know to be able to live a life that is pleasing to God. The scriptures tell us that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not some good works, every good work. And here's another point I'd like to make for you. If I don't know God's will on a topic, we're talking about a moral topic, I either don't know enough about what God's word says about the topic, or I don't understand the subject matter well enough to know how God's word connects to the topic. In other words, we don't know what a moral answer is in life. It's either I need to know God's word more, or I need to know the situation more. And somewhere if I dig into both of those, I'll find where God's word connects to things. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about a hot button topic in our culture. It's called the topic of abortion. Now, if you are someone who has had an abortion, please let me tell you right up front, I have great compassion for you. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. God cleanses our sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But look what the scripture says about this. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Unformed substance. When someone was just a cluster of cells inside of their mother's womb, before you even began to look like a human being, God knows that person, has identified that person, and has life planned for that person. This is why Christians 
treasure life from the moment of conception onward. Because the scripture tells us from the moment of conception, someone is a person. Now, this is nice and good to know. This is why we treasure our children and we don't abort our children. But there's another thing that maybe is more practical with this. And that is the methods of birth control that are out there that people use these days. You may not know this, but some methods of birth control prevent conception. Other methods of birth control abort after conception in the very earliest of stages when someone is just in the position of being an unformed substance. Some methods of birth control then destroy the child. I was preaching about this a number of years ago and I talked about how an IUD, an intrauterine device, that's what it does. It doesn't allow a, a child that has been conceived to implant in a mother's uterine wall and continue to grow and get nourishment. It, it aborts a child. And I, I use this as an example. You know, if you, once you dig down deeper in the scripture, we looked at the Psalms, unformed substance, God knows and has a plan. So in the very beginning conception, the scripture says someone's a person. And then you dig down deeper in how birth control works and you find some are abortive and you see how the Bible addresses those things. I was preaching on this and a woman came up to me after the service and her face was white as a sheet. And she said, I had no idea that for years I've been aborting my children because she never understood how the method of birth control she had chosen actually worked. So we see when it comes to understanding God's will on most situations, what we do is we dig into the text and we dig into the subject and we see where they connect. And the text tells us the truth, by the way. The uh, internet, it tells us the spin, right? That's what the Bible says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But what about things where the Bible may not clearly address? For that, we have something called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, comes inside of you. He takes up residence in you. He convicts you of sin. He guides you into truth. And he leads you. Now, in the Old Testament, in the time when 1 Samuel is being written, the Holy Spirit seems to have come on people for... Um, certain particular works or temporarily, but doesn't seem like he indwells people like what happens after the time of Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit is inside of us. He guides us. So when it comes to us determining what God's will is for a situation, the first thing we do is we dig into the text and we dig into the, the question and we see where they connect. The other thing we do is we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. You don't put the options on a paradise and roll it. We don't have to do that. We have the Bible and we have the Spirit. Let's get back into our text. Saul has been selected by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. Well, there we are, wonderful leadership quality right there. So they inquired again of the Lord. I mean, is there a man still to come? Are we missing somebody? And I love this. And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> they are looking for a fearless leader. Looks like they have a pretty good scaredy cat. Last week, he hid his anointing, being chosen king from his uncle. Now he's trying to hide from the people. 
Saul knew the lot was going to fall on him, but he doesn't want to do his job. Now the people, they want a king like the other nations. God gave them a king who is a coward and who neglects his duty. And here's the problem. He didn't come from Amazon. So you can't send him back. They're stuck with him. He doesn't have a return policy. And here's what I find funny. They're trying to get rid of God. They're trying to reject God. But they need God to find their king. (laughs) You notice that? They're pretty helpless without God. God has to tell them that he's hiding in the baggage. And as I thought about that, you know, isn't that the way it often works in life? People try to be independent of God. They try to run from God, but the harder they run, the more they actually find themselves needing God's help. I put this down as an application point. No matter how hard people run from God, they will always find themselves in need of God, won't they? This is a good point of application for us. As a church, we are trying to always reach people with Jesus Christ. And when you're in public with people, it's sometimes hard to bring God into a conversation or to bring Jesus into a conversation because people are sort of awkward. But you notice when the bottom starts falling apart in people's worlds, when things are going hard for them and difficult for them, when they're in the hospital with COVID and you get to talk to them on the phone, they may be a hardened atheist, but when I say, hey, can I pray for you? Nobody seems to refuse at that point. They're happy to call out to God with you for help. I say that this is a great way that we can share the gospel in our community. When you have friends, neighbors, and coworkers where the world is falling apart around them, chances are, even though they may be fighting God, they'll be very open to God. Step into that opportunity. Simply say, can I pray for you? Can I help you? Lean into that and they will actually listen. So it continues. Then they ran and took him from there. So you picture this, they get to the baggage. They're like picking up all the suitcases. They're under the suitcases in the fetal position is their fearless king on the bottom. It seems sort of funny to me. And when he stood up among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. What we're going to go right back to is the way that the people keep evaluating him is by the way he looks, by his external appearances. He's taller than other people. Remember we saw last week he's better looking than other people. He has those chiseled abs and, you know, that really good looking face. He has amazing good looks and that is what the people want. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. He's taller, he's better looking. But as we've seen already on the inside, he's a complete mess. Here's another application point for us. Don't judge people by the way they look on the outside. God looks at the heart on the insides. You don't see it in this immediate text, but you see it in the longer range looking at uh, the book of 1 Samuel. 
Saul is known as the king the people wanted, the king the people chose, because he looks good on the outside, taller, better looking, but he's a mess on the inside. You go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you find David. David is the king that God chooses. But what does it say in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7? He was, David was chosen not because of how he looks on the outside, but because God looked at his heart. Remember, Jesse, his father, didn't even bring David to be considered because he was just a boy. But it didn't matter because God knew what mattered was going, what's going on the inside of his life, not the outside. Then it continues. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Well, he looks really good. This is the kind of guy we want. And then we have the duties of the king are given next. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Now, most likely, what he actually read for them, read for, the, for them was Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read through it, but I'll summarize it for you. It said, the king of God's people was forbidden to accumulate wealth, forbidden to live in luxury. He was to be devoted to observing God's word. He's to be a man of the book. He's to have a handwritten copy of the book that he was to carry with him every day. He was to read it every day. He was to observe God's laws. The secret of his success as a king would be tied to how he observed and followed God's laws in his life. As I thought about that, is that just for kings of Israel? Or does that also apply to you and to me? That we're to be men and women of the book. To read the book every day. To know God's word. And the success in our life is often tied to how well we observe God's laws and God's words. Here's an application point for you. God's grace through Jesus is what sets us free from sin and bondage. But God's law was given to keep us free. Let me give this to you from an Old Testament perspective. In the Exodus, remember we talked about that earlier, uh, God's people were set free from slavery in Egypt. What did they have to do to set themselves free? Nothing but stand there and watch God save them from certain death and destruction. God did all the work. They received it by faith. But after God saved them, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and then he gave them his law. After God set them free, he gave them his laws so they would be kept free. Freedom was found for them in obeying God's commands, not rebelling against God's commands. The same is true for us. It's back to the story. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. So much for acting like a king after you've been crowned one. He just goes home. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. This little phrase, men of valor, in the Hebrew, it actually can mean men of the army. Man, God is really stacking everything in Saul's corner. Been anointed as king by Saul. 
He's been publicly recognized as king with the lots. He's had the Holy Spirit rush on him, change him into a completely different person. Now he has a men that are like the army men that are following him. Everything stacked in his corner. And he goes home. Do you think he does anything about the garrison of Philistines at Gibbeth Elohim that he was told to eliminate? Absolutely not. Quite a passive leader. But you know what? At least he's good looking. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? Baggage boy. And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. Some people are saying, this guy's crazy. He doesn't have the leadership qualities we need. But the question is, will Saul continue in this way? He has everything in his corner God's given to him. The army, the gifts, the anointing, the public recognition. Will he ever step to the plate and lead? The answer, we'll find out next week. Some points of application for you that we saw today. You know, sometimes God gives nations the kind of leader, leader they want as a form of discipline on the people. That's one of the big ideas of this text. Saul was judgment upon the people for the rejecting him as king. Don't judge people by the way they look. God judges the heart. The difference between Saul as king and David as king. Even though God is in control of random events, we don't make choices based on chance. We don't roll dice to determine what we should do. We check God's word for God's will and we rely on the Holy Spirit for guidance. Number four, God's grace through Jesus is what sets us free from sin and bondage, but God's law was given to us to keep us free from sin and bondage. That is why we obey it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see Saul is not starting out well. He looks like a really miserable king. But I thank you that right now, Saul is not the king we're following. We're following your son, Jesus Christ. While Saul was outwardly attractive, but inwardly a mess, we know that the scriptures tell us that your, that your son, Jesus, there was nothing to attract us to him, but inside he was perfect and pure and sinless. We know Saul was a passive leader, who did nothing to save his people. But Jesus, he was an active leader who chose to die on the cross to save us. While Saul couldn't, sac couldn't sacrifice and had no self-sacrifice about him, Jesus had complete self-sacrifice because he loves us. Thank you, Jesus, that right now we are following you as our king, not Saul as our king. You, Jesus, are the king that has come for us, the king that is worth following, and the king that we trust. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.